Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Barry Beckadam. This is Barry's first interview since returning from federal prison last year. What I liked most about Barry was his openness and candor as he painstakingly takes us through his remarkable story from immigrant to starter on the Villanova basketball team to real estate investor to multi-billion dollar mainline investment manager, and then to his problems when some of his clients lost money in the Rothstein Ponzi scheme, and then as former chairman of a bank accused of TARP fraud. Barry took his case to trial and was partially vindicated, but ultimately was sentenced to 11 months in federal prison. Barry's is an incredible story of resilience through over a decade of issues. So coming up, Barry Beckadam on White Collar Week. I hope you'll join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. Today, we have such an interesting guest. I, I, I can't even tell you. His name is Barry Beckadam. Beckadam and um, I don't know if I should introduce you as a bank owner, as a, uh, as a private capital guy, as a basketball player, as an exceptionally tall person. You have, like, <laughs> you have so many cool aspects. Um, but in our prep call, um, I just found you, or our first call, so uh, engaging. And a story like yours is, it's not common, you know, and especially for someone who's kind of lived the kind of life you've lived, you know, right life, very successful guy. So, um, um, hi, Barry. Welcome to White Collar Week. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me, buddy. Um, why don't we kind of start? at the very beginning, because you have like a cool backstory, you know, in terms of where you were raised and, and becoming a, a you know, a, a ball player and all of that. And that kind of informed a lot of the things that went on in your life. So wh- why don't we start there? Sure. Uh, my parents immigrated to Canada from Holland after the war. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Canada. I'm Canadian. Um, they, uh, you know, hardworking immigrant family, typical share to bed with my brother kind of thing, you know, uh, small house. Um, my brother went to community college, uh, worked his way through, cut grass, shoveled snow. Uh, my sister worked at McDonald's, paid her way through community college. I was sort of doing the same. They were obviously older than I was. And I, um, uh, one summer I started playing ball. Uh, my body had grown to the point where I was, you know, just shy of 6'10". Mm-hmm. And like Bambi on ice, I could suddenly do things, uh, you know, run, jump. Uh, you know, one of the high school guys there when I was a freshman uh, cut me and he was a sort of the, you know, the guy that famously kept Barry Beckadam. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I had an opportunity one summer when a guy whose brother was an assistant coach at a high school in Philadelphia, he was mm-hmm. a Philadelphia guy. Mm-hmm. And he said, gosh, you know, you run, you jump, you stink, but God, athletically, you could get some financial aid in the United States. They don't give financial aid in in, uh, in schools in Canada, per se. 
Yeah. So um, I said, yeah, well, what a great opportunity. My sister talked my, you know, deeply religious, you know, immigrant parents and letting me take a shot. They've been a family for me to, to live with outside of Philadelphia. I went to Archbishop Carroll High School. Mm-hmm. And um, that family became my mom and dad, too. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a crash course in basketball. Philadelphia Catholic League is, is quite challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned very quickly. Uh, played very well my junior year. Went to all those usual summer camps. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. My dad, my senior year. And my senior year as a McDonald's All-American, Pennsylvania Player of the Year, and literally changed my life. You know, I went from, gosh, I want to get some financial aid for college to yeah. pretty much anywhere you want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't feel like moving again. Mm-hmm. And it was still within driving distance of, of my family's home in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, and Villanova had just won the national championship. Uh, yeah, Nova. So, yeah. So, uh, I decided to stay at home and play at Villanova. Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding that it was a you know, four-year degree kind of financial aid thing. And that's what I was focused on. So mm-hmm. I was an accounting major there, mm-hmm. um, arguably one of the best degrees you can get at Villanova. So that was uh, that was something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I played for Canada um, during summers and off-seasons, went overseas after that. And so played a lot of basketball until my knees pretty much gave out. And in the meantime, just literally loved business. I and mean, business was something that I just always wanted to do. Yeah. So where, where's the, the nexus between team player, team sports, learning about your character, growth, and then, what, and then heading into business and knowing, uh, adapting the skills as kind of a six foot 10 guy in a world of mere mortals? Well, it's, you know, it's all the, the, the great athletic skills that you get, right? Hard work, discipline. Um, you know, working as a team, uh, but playing, especially in the big East and traveling around with a major college program, you, sure. you have to be on it. I mean, you're, you're studying, you're, you're truly a student athlete. And so, you know, scheduling your time, uh, because you're either in practice, you're either in a shoot around, you're, you're training, you're trying to study in between and, and get good grades. So. Um, and have a good time, have a college experience, which I certainly did. Uh, we had a lot of fun. And so uh, Rolly Mouse and me to make sure of that, uh, our coach. So, um, you know, it, it's all of those things, but most importantly, time management. Uh, Rolly had a theory that if you had a, you know, more than two hours off, you'd probably get in trouble. So he kept us busy all the time. Probably right. Something. Yeah, probably right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I know I would have I partaken in, in having fun when I could, as any young guy would. So. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was definitely a learning experience and prepared you for business. Why so many great business people have athletic backgrounds. Uh, yeah. To, and so, um, you know, but that hard work started with my parents, yeah. uh, started with, uh, you know, them cleaning office buildings at night for extra money. And, and you know, that, that, that immigrant sort of grittiness mm-hmm. uh, was something that, that, you know, was just second nature at that point. And one of the things I picked up from when, when we talked last was that uh, Will Smith has a series of videos out. You know, Will Smith, the French, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but a movie star, right? And, and one of the things he says is that people look at him as, as if he's a rapper or as, as a movie guy. But what they don't really look at him as, as, as a guy who is super focused and super successful and would have... And can be successful in anything because 
he has that drive to be successful. And so we're so quick to categorize people, but it's not surprising that an athlete, for example, would become successful in business because it's the same muscle, it's the same drive. And um, so I found that fascinating in, in when I talked to you, and it kind of reminded me of that. So w- where do you go next after Villanova? Uh, well, I went overseas and played. So I lived in Germany for a little while. Mm-hmm. I lived in South America for a little while. Um, saved my money. I had a, a mentor that was in the real estate business. So he mm-hmm. taught me how to buy my first rental property. So I really started in real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, multifamily, uh, storage, uh, warehouses, B office space. Uh, and, you know, everything from you know, painting to, you know, taking out the trash, whatever it took. Uh, you know, to to learn, going to my first closings to figure out how these things were bought, how to run the numbers, so to speak. Uh, we would drive around with a with a truck and look at commercial properties with a back of the envelope and an HP 12C, right, and and try and see whether there was an opportunity there. Mm-hmm. And so, with his mentorship, you know, I ended up with a fair number of properties and in an income stream. And so, yeah, as they say, I made my first million in in uh, in properties. Yeah. And, um, working with community banks and nobody else would give you a loan back then. It was a community bank that you had to deal with. They were the most entrepreneurial. And so that's really where, where I got my start was on the real estate side. And so how, how does that grow or for you? How did, how did that grow from being a real estate entrepreneur? And because brick and mortar real estate is kind of easy. Well, I shouldn't say that because I was a real estate lawyer, but but it's kind of easy, at least, to understand. There, there, it's not a complicated. It's not a complicated business. I mean, it, it might take a lot of uh, a lot of moxie, but it, right. but it's but it's not a sophisticated business. And you wind up getting into some pretty sophisticated businesses. Yeah, in- interestingly enough, I was never a developer. I was never that risky. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I did develop a couple of self storage facilities, mm-hmm. but we really knew the math, right? We knew once we converted them to a self storage facility, how we would do. Mm-hmm. Because we bought an existing self-storage facility and it opened my door, my eyes to self-storage. Under-rented, deferred maintenance, you're just figuring out the math, right? Yeah. Uh, doing multifamily with a big apartment building. Wow. you got to really manage all these people sure. uh, as they're living there. So, mm-hmm. you know, went through that learning curve, uh, learning how to finance them, learning how to value them. Uh, and so, yeah, that was... That was bread and butter entrepreneurialism. You're right. But it, you know, it teaches you when you've never done any of this stuff. Uh, my father was certainly not a businessman. Um, you know, it was pretty much self-taught. I didn't go to work for another company. Um, I've never worked for really anyone from that perspective. Uh, and so this was pretty much self-taught. Uh, I remember a lot of my friends in Villanova going to Wall Street. And uh, I, I recall, you know, being full of paint and, and doing other things and grinding that stuff out. And and uh, putting on a suit to go to happy hour because <laughs> because I was, I was working on properties all day, and so uh, but I kind of felt like I was missing something, you know, on Wall Street. Uh, I was fascinated by it, uh, but really didn't know, and it was never never formally trained. Yeah, but but you had to know that this is entrepreneurship at its at its at its core. Like you're you're right. So so what's what's the next big step for you? The next big step was I met these these guys who um, were in the um, registered investment advisory business, mm-hmm. and they were within a group that was selling life insurance to high net worth individuals. 
Uh, they were you know, cold calling wealthy business owners to get them to do estate planning and all things. But finally, it ended up with a life insurance sale more than not. Um, and so I, you know, like anything else, I put on a suit, went down there and saw what these guys were doing and, and just started hanging out uh, to watch what what they what money management was all about and how they were looking at it. Um, and, and it blew me away, I'll be honest with you, when I got a chance to sit with and be invited to meetings with some wealthy families as they were talking estate planning, like a fly in the wall, they invited me, oh, sure, come in this meeting, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I was blown away at what I thought was this going to be this eye-opening sophistication. And what I noticed were an awful lot of these families really had organizational problems. They had money all over the place. They weren't really paying attention because the bulk of their wealth was in a privately held business and not necessarily in the liquid assets spread out all over the place. And so not only was it administratively somewhat disorganized, uh, just to collect the information from the family post the patriarch passing, for example, was a, was a, you know, finding a wild goose chase of of paperwork. Yeah. Uh, And so just, providing uh, consolidated reporting for these people seemed like an idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at the time, there was a new software company in San Francisco called Advent, mm-hmm. and they were doing you know, downloaded reporting through broker dealers and so forth and so on for RIAs. And that was a new thing, um, but not really for the alternative assets. And back then, alternative assets were leftover limited partnerships from the 80s that they didn't know what to do with, if you recall. Yeah, sure. And so... You know, I really learned that there was sort of, a, like I said, a, a lack of sophistication among a great number of very wealthy families that own businesses. Um, and there presented itself an opportunity to work with them to not only provide asset management, which they seem to just sort of, sure, you can do that. Um, but at the same time, there was a need for, but do me a favor, organize all the other stuff we have. We've got several million dollars in our family's charitable foundation. We've got the company's pension plan has, you know, a few million dollars there. Mm-hmm. And so there are, you know, pockets of capital, uh, you know, dad's old roommate at Merrill Lynch, we gave him a few million you know, mm-hmm. yeah. years ago, you know, so there wasn't any real organization to it. And that, that really presented an opportunity to me. So mm-hmm. um, I spent some time with the guys that were doing it there, watched what they did badly, and ultimately said, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Having never done it before, I formed a, a, a registered investment advisory, registered mm-hmm. with the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, had a handful of people there that I've gotten to know. Uh, I had a partner for a little while. That didn't really work out. Uh, and so I, um, I went on my own uh, and founded my own uh, RIA and private wealth business. And, and did you have to get licensed? Did you have to... Uh, um go through any schooling training for that kind of thing? What I thought was interesting is that you, you at the time, if I recall, was you needed a series 65, mm-hmm. you needed a series seven, but once you got the RAA, you didn't necessarily need to maintain those licenses. Mm-hmm. So while I was at the life insurance group, I studied with them and did all the things necessary to pass mm-hmm. those exams. Uh, but once you became an RIA, you didn't need to necessarily keep those, those uh, licenses on a shelf per se with a broker dealer because my business plan was never to sell anything to anyone. Right. So the reality was we didn't require it because fee only uh, objective advice was the goal of the firm. Mm-hmm. So th- th- I think this is interesting for people who are uh, starting out, trying to find a career path, are intimidated by going out there on their own, 
And so you kind of bootstrap your way right into doing from thing to thing to thing. And now you are rubbing elbows with people who can change your life in a significant way. Well, I had some people that, that believed in the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, interestingly enough, the first office I had was built out in the front of a self-storage facility. Yeah. Uh, and we ended up managing hundreds of millions of dollars there before we moved to uh, what will be considered class A space. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real sort of macroeconomic uh, play or, that I made or that I presented to clients, which I had no idea would turn into a $1 trillion industry, was introduction of an asset class called private income. What I noticed was that uh, the delivery system of uh, income-producing, double-digit income-producing idea flow from Wall Street to wealthy families was almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Typical portfolio back then was generally 50-50 stocks and bonds. The bonds were a ladder of some sort. Uh, and to the extent that there were private assets in a portfolio, it was private equity, not necessarily yeah. in kind of income-producing asset. And of course, being a self-storage guy, I'm sitting there looking at the 10% 10 cap that we're buying, right, with no debt, uh, and looking at the returns saying that that seemed like a deliverable for yeah. people. Mm-hmm. And as we've watched uh, the yield depression that has occurred over the last 20 years or so, really since 1994, mm-hmm. which is exactly when I started this, um, there became this pressing need on the part of all these families, especially when they sold their operating businesses and created liquidity to replace income. Mm-hmm. Because the 50-50 stock and bond portfolio, when the bond portfolio started dropping in yield yeah. uh, and the stock portfolio became over-reliant with volatility, especially mm-hmm. in the dot-com crash, um, there was this nice ability to sort of insert in between a uh, uh, a series of Walgreens land leases, um, apartment buildings, uh, private preferred equity in, in businesses. Um, so certainly not venture capital or anything of the sort, but uh, uh, what I would hope would be a more predictable asset class generating higher yields uh, than could be purchased publicly, uh, clearly with the illiquidity associated with that. But at the same time, there was just this overwhelming need and so when I would present to a family versus a competition with other wealth firms who had no ability to deliver that and solve the, we sold our business, now we need income to live on, mm-hmm. um, nobody else could come up with that answer or there was generally not an answer to that. And, and so for many, many years, we, um, that, that was really the, the goal of the firm. And were, were they asking questions like, or did, or did they have independent people at that point who were still working with them or... Were they asking questions about like what brick and mortar is is behind this? I mean, these are these are um, uh, you know there's there's actual buildings or investments behind that are that are securing these investments. I mean, was that was that part of the equation? Oh, sure, mm-hmm. sure. I mean, everybody had their gatekeepers and, and their mm-hmm. accounting people. We never touched client money. Uh, it was always housed at Fidelity or Schwab. I used to pair them off against each other to get cheaper costs. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean we didn't have traditional assets. So our long-only portfolio was highly diversified. Um, our you know, fixed income portfolio, we had several hundred million dollars of fixed income. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely had other asset classes. We just put uh, these private assets in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as we grew, uh, it's funny, the industry started to grow too. So there yeah. were funds that delivered that. So mm-hmm. 
in the Philadelphia area, the Lupert Adler guys were very successful in creating their real estate income fund, their business income fund, which is now, I think, in the hundreds of billions of dollars. A small group down in Atlanta called Chatham Capital, which are the former GE guys. Uh, they are very successful and very good. So we started making allocations to funds like that. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the industry grew up around us. So we didn't have to necessarily invest directly into companies. But at the same time, there was this, this, this growth pattern um, with my business. We went from you know, 10, 15 clients and 50, 100 million under management to you know, 155 clients and you know, a couple billion uh, very quickly. How did you know, as a guy who was not classically trained or, or hadn't worked in a larger organization, how did you know how to put that organization together with, uh, with um, uh, the various departments that you would need and um, um, uh, layers of management and uh, checks and balances? How, how, do you, how do you know how to do that? Or you're bringing in people who do, who do know how to do it. I didn't. Uh, I had to learn. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you, you, you read a lot, you talk to a lot of people who are your mentors, you, you look at who you should hire, you, first of all, you outsource to a really good law firm, you outsource mm-hmm. to a really good accounting firm, uh, you try and, and partner with as many people as they did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in hindsight, that firm, uh, we grew way too fast and outstripped the talent that I had, which is not uncommon. Um, you know, we were very much a disruptor because when we met with mm-hmm. customers, we, we almost always got hired, mm-hmm. uh, because nobody else could deliver. Uh, so we were correct on that front. Uh, but the reality is allocating capital, um, you know, was, was difficult because we had a lot of capital coming in and, you know, be honest with you, there were professionals who saw our ability to raise capital and took advantage of us and took advantage of me, sure. uh, in terms of. Uh, promising and not delivering for our client base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it got away from me. I'll be very honest with you. Uh, we grow so fast that, that you know, even though I hired uh, staff, I hired, uh, you know, ultimately CFAs and full-time general counsels sure. and like that, um, you know, we, we could have used more and I would have done that differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but conceptually, we were, we were 100% right. Uh, operationally, could have executed significantly better. Yeah, that's kind of where I was headed because cl- compliance is just coming into the modern age at that point. Right. And, um, and of course, compliance is very reactive to what's going on um, in terms of governmental oversight and things like that. Um, and uh, a lot of people are getting burned along the way or they're getting hurt. And that's where you learn from or that's where the compliance right. learns from. So wh- what's, what's the next step in you becoming a banker? Well, the, the, the first of all, on the compliance front, you know, we always outsource to, you know, the compliance firms for companies that would, would handle a lot of that. And I kept the business simple. We were always fee only. Mm-hmm. So we never touched client money to the extent they invested in a private fund or a private investment. They wired the money directly into that investment. We never touched their money. They signed individual offering memorandum, mm-hmm. right? Um, they received individual reporting to them, not to us, although we were copied to create the consolidated reporting that they really like. Uh, so from that perspective, we kept it really simple. Now, certainly when we got into the billions of dollars, uh, you know, the regulators didn't see RIAs with you know, that size, that fast, and yeah. the types of, of asset classes. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, you know, that was, that meant the audit was, you know, a week of them sitting in our conference room, which that's why I had a general counsel. And that's why I hired a firm to handle that. Uh, and we had never in the history of the company, do we have a, a compliance issue? I'll never forget the one where the guy said, do you have a complaint file? And I said, well, we don't have any complaints. He, he took a file out, wrote complaint on it. And he said, you've now complied with rule number, which whatever rule number that was. I thought that was kind of interesting. So um, you're getting very big, very fast, and you got to figure out what, what your personal growth mode is, how your, what, what you want to do with, with, with the rest of your life. So what, what, what's the next move you make? Well, business-wise, this is, this is getting close to the Great Recession, mm -hmm. right? And well, let, you had asked me about banking, yeah, um, which is really, you know, so I really was never a banker. Uh, ever. Um, what happened was in 2003, uh, I was shooting baskets in my driveway in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. And my neighbor walked across the street. I got to know him. And he was the former CFO of a very successful community bank in Philadelphia, one of the most successful. Uh, that bank was sold. He was working for another bank. And, and we sort of talked banking because I was sort of fascinated with how community banks work and banks in general. I saw a lot of families investing early in community banks and had done very, very well. And so I had an interest there. Uh, my understanding is he was approached by regulators to take over a bank that was not performing. It's a very, very small bank, about $100 million in assets, I think. Um, this was in 2003. And uh, because they were failing uh, you know, administratively or whatnot. And yeah. would he take it over? Would he raise the capital to take it over? Mm -hmm. He said he would because he was familiar with where their problems were mm -hmm. and um, said it was a great opportunity. So we looked at the, at the bank. We looked at the opportunity to be in a small community bank. So we put together some capital uh, to invest in the bank. He had asked, would, you, would I want to be involved? And from a learning experience, I said, absolutely. I would love to, to, to get involved. And he said, well, there's a chairmanship open. Would you like to be the chairman of the bank? I said, oh, yeah, sure. Why not? So again, this is a very small bank. Yeah. Um, so I became chairman in an uncompensated role uh, to remain objective to the very small investment that we had uh, mm -hmm. in the bank uh, in terms of the investors in the bank at that time. And so, you know, 2003, four or five, I'm part of this community bank having the early morning meetings. The rest of the board meetings didn't like it because I called the meetings at 7 a.m. in Philadelphia uh, because I'm an early morning guy. And, uh, you know, so we could, we could be done by lunch. Yeah. Uh, and so it was fascinating. I learned mm -hmm. a lot about how banks are regulated, how they're capitalized. About the accounting uh, that I did not know, uh, about the margins, interest rate margins, and so forth. So it was a really good learning experience for me. Um, by 2006, uh, I, I just didn't have any time. Uh, I was working so much and traveling so much, it was impossible for me to be on that board anymore. So I resigned in about 06 from both the holding company as well as the bank. Yeah. So wh where where's the first? sign of trouble where, where, where does that start to come into this wow so in in 2009 uh we had any number of investments that required workouts not unusual in a great recession scenario but mm -hmm. we felt fairly confident in most of the assets and customers were were you know still with us and we were mm -hmm. producing our reporting and you know, there were come some businesses that required workouts, which is not unusual during that period of time. But we felt good that we would get through this just like we got through the dot-com recession 
Um, and interestingly enough, before the dot-com recession, you were fired for not being in dot-com stuff. And then afterwards, you know, you remember those days. So you know, I, 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 I got burned so heavily in the dot-com dot burst. I can't even tell you. It, it, it affected my whole life. So, so in, in, in 2009, we had made a very small loan relative to the size of the firm. It was about $32 million mm -hmm. uh, with a very ultra-high net worth individual in South Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember him fighting me aggressively mm -hmm. on the personal guarantee mm -hmm. uh, that we provided, uh, that we got for our clients. Yeah. And so, and we had an idea who was going to take us out at the end of the year. Uh, but in the meantime, our clients would get a nice, you know, fifteen percent coupon. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew again that we would we would probably get out at the end of the year, sort of bridge loan capital kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so we provided that capital, uh, and I got to know this this gentleman in South Florida. Mm -hmm. um, he was a friend of my wife's, and we, um, you know, so we we had that among all kinds of investments all over the country. Yeah. Right. So this was again a relatively small investment, uh, but you know, as the as the year progressed, uh, you know, again, you're running around, you're trying to to, to manage through the, this this horrible horrible recession impacting just about it. There is an investment that isn't impacted because your good investments are being drawn down to fund the bad ones for people who need liquidity. Yeah. So it was a very difficult time, as you know. Uh, October thirty first. Uh, 2009 is when the Rothstein Ponzi scheme was was announced to the world. Right. Uh, that this was a Ponzi, and of course, I ended up meeting in Fort Lauderdale with a whole group of people. Most most of us had no idea that that this guy had taken money from the other group of people, mm -hmm. and we met in a big conference room and realized that we were all victims of the Ponzi scheme. Uh, my clients being about thirty to thirty two million dollars give or take. So your your clients are in the Ponzi scheme, and but the, does your group have its own money in this scheme, or are you advisory? Invest mm -hmm. uh, ever with our mm -hmm. customers or clients. Mm -hmm. So our clients provided a loan to this individual. Mm -hmm. He put that capital into the Ponzi scheme. Right. So he, I think he had about a hundred million of his own money mm -hmm. in the Ponzi scheme, as well as his family and friends. So mm -hmm. he was probably among the larger victims. Um, our clients were approximately $32 million. And again, loan to him with a personal guarantee. He's a guy with a net worth of, you know, easily nine figures. Uh, so the personal guarantee was not without merit. Uh, and so the, um, but ultimately, you know, the Ponzi, which we were a step removed from, um, you know, lost all the capital. Uh, and so it was eye opening to all of us. You know, how could this possibly be? And we all know now the history of Rothstein's Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Um, so how um, how do you get dragged into this now? How does this become a problem for you? Well, clearly, you know, when you're pulled into uh, a Ponzi scheme and, and your firm gets named and you get named, um, you know, we're, we're come across the we, we came across to people as this this big feeder to the Ponzi, uh, and interestingly enough, we have, we have nothing to do with the Ponzi, we gave a guy a loan, right? So for us, you know, there's there's no way to hide from that. Uh, mm -hmm. I learned very fast that it was just a meltdown of public relations, mm -hmm. and that litigation often takes years to figure out. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we're also fighting a great recession and mm -hmm. trying to manage other investments that need our mm -hmm. attention and time. And so the distraction of being involved in a Ponzi with unknown litigation was something way beyond me. I had yeah. no idea what was to come. 
I had no idea how it would impact us, but our marketing people couldn't market. Our clients didn't want to be associated with it. Not just not because of a loss of money, but a lot of it had to do with just embarrassment of being sucked into it. Yeah. Uh, how could this possibly happen to us? Mm-hmm. And so not many people really wanted to listen, you know, to the extent that you had done due diligence and looked at this thing and felt very confident that we would get all the, the money back, which ultimately mm-hmm. happened. The vast majority of capital was recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is that, uh, you know, nobody really wanted to hear that then. And I found myself almost out of business uh, mm-hmm. within months. It was, it was impossible to manage the business, defending yourself in the private wealth business when you've been pulled into a bond. So uh, what comes next? Because um, the the um, crosshairs of the government fall on you. So how do we get from where where you were in this advisory role and lending money and, and got caught up in someone else's Ponzi scheme to you actually becoming a target? Well, I, I didn't know anything about, which most of us don't. I don't know anything about being targets of anything mm-hmm. in terms of a criminal investigation. Yeah. Uh, at the time, we were dealing with hiring attorneys for our clients to represent them in the Ponzi recovery. Yeah. That was our focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I basically sold off or, or did a cooperation agreement with another firm to save the jobs for my employees, longtime employees, mm-hmm. um, again, the old the whole emphasis was how do we recover this capital uh, that's in not just the Ponzi, but in other transactions that require workouts during the Great Recession. Yeah. So at that point, I was advised not to deal with our clients anymore and not to work on any of the workouts. So I just wanted to roll up my sleeves during the Great Recession and, and work through it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was advised not to do that, that, that you know, I really needed to pay attention to you know, what, the, what litigation was coming. Interestingly enough, I don't believe we were ever contacted by the South Florida regulators, whether it be criminal or otherwise. Uh, they learned very quickly that our firm had nothing to do with the Ponzi. Uh, we never made any money from it because... We're the only advisor, so if our clients are in a money market or a mutual fund, we get paid the same amount. Yeah. So from that perspective, there was no feeder fee. So mm-hmm. technically, I, I consider a feeder meaning you you got paid to put it there. We didn't get yeah. any out. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that perspective, there was never any 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 regulatory problem there, and we never really had regulators calling us. What we did have was civil litigation by all the investors in the Ponzi showing up at our doorstep, just circling around everybody that was involved, suing everybody without any real investigation of whether you were involved or not. So that litigation started brewing uh, pretty quickly uh, around our whole business, myself, uh, anybody associated with the Ponzi. So you you must have been freaking out. I mean, this must have been and affecting, affecting your family, affecting your health, affecting everything. Yeah, I mean, reputationally, it, it's hard. You know, I worked really hard to build the investment firm from mm-hmm. you know the early '90s. Mm-hmm. So to have lost the company that I was so proud of and worked so hard to build mm-hmm. um, was devastating, uh, financially and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I at the time, my you know my wife, um, you know, we we didn't know what we were going to do next. Um, it was very hard to go back to work because there was sort of this Ponzi thing, and until it got resolved. Um, you know, it was very t- difficult to accept any kind of, you know, work of any kind uh, and to work on any major projects. You just didn't know what was going to happen. So 
Uh, for us, it was a wait and see. It was, you know, let's let's hire our lawyers and, and tackle each of the litigations as they came up, all yeah. civil litigations. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what, what took place there was in 2013, uh, I was dismissed entirely from the civil litigation associated with the Ponzi, uh, which was great news uh, because we, we never made any money from it and certainly weren't involved in it. Um, so although that took three years of, of, of stress and uh, little did I know that that was the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what was going to happen to me. Yeah. Um, well, did, did, did any of your lawyers tell you back then that it could be the tip of an iceberg that, that things once, once these balls start rolling there, it's unpredictable about how it can wind up affecting you. No, uh, most of most of the attorneys there were all civil because that's all we were dealing with were civil. Mm -hmm. You know, we want money. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of litigations, right? Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, there we started getting noise that the FBI in Philadelphia mm -hmm. was asking questions of some disgruntled investment advisory customers that I had, and we certainly said, okay, uh, we'll 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 you know skip answer subpoenas or whatever came down the path mm -hmm. we couldn't quite figure out what that was about because it really wasn't about south florida uh it wasn't really about the ponzi it didn't feel like anyway um but we, we didn't think we had anything to worry about so we just you know we responded to subpoenas as they came but it seemed like the philadelphia um uh criminal folks the prosecutors uh had an interest in something or another and began in 2010, 11, 12, 13. <laughs> and every few months, I'd get a call from a lawyer saying, well, they're looking at this now. Do you have any idea what this is? Or do you know what this is? And, and so, but there was never really a pattern to it. it. It was look at everything in my old firm, look at everything around the Ponzi, look at everything around pretty much everything that I'd ever been involved in. Um, so I, you know, to say, gosh, I was concerned about something, you couldn't really tell what they were looking at. But you get a knock on the door one day. Um, I, I never did. Mm -hmm. um, I never got, I never was contacted, I don't think, individually. Mm -hmm. um, I was never, I, I don't recall. Again, it was always your lawyer buffer, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I remember my ex-wife uh, being subpoenaed at one point. Mm -hmm. uh, they showed up with three cars in the driveway, so to speak, in suburban Philadelphia. I came mm -hmm. to a note. Mm -hmm. I remember her saying, telling me, yeah, I asked them, I said, you needed three cars to show up and deliver me this thing. Uh, and so, you know, interestingly enough, they, they were asking about um, a payment that, that or an they referred to it as an investment that she made in Novabank. Mm -hmm. Or she went down to meet with the, the prosecutor and had a, had a meeting with him and discussed, uh, you know, that investment. Turns out it wasn't an investment. It was to deposit by me into her bank account at Novabank, where we happened to bank. Mm -hmm. And they asked her about it, and she handed them our divorce agreement, whereby I made that payment every year. <laughs> and so that was about the end of the interview, and she left. Mm -hmm. um, so it was that kind of thing. There was really no pattern, didn't know really what the crime was there. Uh, but I will tell you, I never really thought anything about my old relationship with Nova Bank as being anything to do with this. Yeah. It never crossed my mind mm -hmm. that there was any exposure there at all. Uh, for us, it seemed to be because what we found is they were contacting all of the general partners and all of the private investments that we made, which might have been 80 or so at the firm to find out if I had been paid under the table. 
to find out if I had done some different things like that. And of course, they, they, they didn't do that. So, um, you know, our audit in 2008 by the SEC didn't, didn't show anything negative at all. Um, and so the business became less and less of interest. We couldn't figure out what they were interested in. So w- when do you find out exactly what they're interested in? Well, I remember being in my car uh, outside of my office in Florida. Mm-hmm. And I get a call from the lawyer. And some variation of this, he said, Barry, they're, they're, they're going to indict you. Mm. And I remember saying, for what? <laughs> and he said, tarp fraud. Yeah. And I said, what the hell is tarp fraud? And he said, well, you know, you're chairman of a community bank, right? Mm. And I said, yeah, but gosh, I, I don't remember what year, but I resigned back in 05, 06. He said, oh. He said, well, you know, that bank, they, they took tarp, right? I said, well, honestly, I, I don't think they did. He goes, you're kidding. I said, hold on a minute. And I remember I called the, the former CEO, my former neighbor, and yeah. I said, gosh, we're being indicted. And he said, yeah. I said, anybody else? And he said, no, it's just you and me. I said, oh, so, he knew, so he knew already. I think so. Mm-hmm. I, again, I don't recall. This is years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he said, uh, I said, what's tarp fraud? He goes, I don't really know. I said, I, I got to ask you a question. Did you guys take tarp? He goes, we never took any tarp. Mm-hmm. We applied for it, but we never actually received it because they shut down the program. I said, so if you didn't take tarp, how can there be a tarp fraud? He goes, I don't know. And that's really where it started. So I'll never forget. To this day, I, I still have the attorneys explaining the indictment to me because I still yeah. never understood the crime. I, uh, mm-hmm. Years you're dealing with this thing, I never understood what the crime was. And neither did they. Nobody really did. Mm-hmm. So um, you get indicted, and now you have to respond. You have to go through the the exercise of actually hiring a criminal lawyer and and being involved in this. What what, what is that about for you? You know, we we thought that that our life could go on. My wife and I. Uh, mm-hmm. After the settlement and the uh, dismissal from the civil litigation involving yeah. the Ponzi scheme, mm-hmm. yeah, the Ponzi scheme was horribly embarrassing to me. Sure. Uh, most people did not know the facts. If you mm-hmm. talk to anybody, they think I ran a Ponzi. I had nothing to do with a Ponzi, uh, and that was evident. Mm-hmm. And so this just seemed, you know, as we were getting our life back together, um, out of nowhere, it just mm-hmm. seemed so insane that this was just ramping up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember the group of lawyers that we had talking about the fact that the the the, um, the indictment not made it didn't make any sense. Um, but the unusual step, certainly a lot of us make the mistake of saying, well, why can't we just go down there and explain it to them yeah. that they got this wrong? Mm-hmm. And of course, that's when they're like, yeah, no, 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 you're not going down there to talk to them. Mm-hmm. But in this case, surprisingly enough, there was a show of hands of the lawyers saying, yeah. We think we're going to go contact them and see if we can't work this out before the indictment becomes public. Uh, and so I ended up going down the, the visit with them uh, for you know what seemed like an eternity, but hours and hours of sitting in a conference room. And, and, and this is a formal proffer, queen for a day or whatever. Right. This is yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have four lawyers. They've got a whole group of people, including the agents mm-hmm. involved in the case. And it was a, you know, I left. Figuring, gosh, they asked me everything under the sun. I still at this point have no idea what the crime is Mm -hmm. because it's not evident based on the questions or the line of questions what the crime is. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so I felt pretty confident that, gosh, we, we, we answered the questions, that there didn't seem to be anything unknown out there, and that it might go away. Uh, but the, the last day, January 18th, I think, of 2015, um, they decided to unseal it and mm-hmm. proceed with this litigation uh, criminal, criminal case against Brian and I. When you say last day, uh, um, just describe for any for anyone who's a uh, who doesn't know what that means. Uh, um, listening into this, what, what does last day mean? Well, they told us that the day that they were making their decision to go public with this would be. I, I may be wrong, but the January eighteenth of two thousand fifteen, mm-hmm. uh, and they waited right up until January fifteenth of two thousand eighteen. Didn't tell us anything, and they had just unsealed it. And so, woke up one morning, and I was a public. You know, indicted criminal con- con- uh, con- felon. So you know, uh, soon to be anyway. And and it's um, it's in the news. It's there's a press release, all of that stuff. Yep, yep. And as you know, you're my opinion is you're guilty until proven innocent in this country when that comes out because at that point the wheels of the media, uh, pretty much everything goes against you at that point. The odds you survive it are very small. So the and no doubt the 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 nexus between the, or, or although at that point um, dismissed, but the nexus with the Rothstein Ponzi becomes in uh, uh, is part of the story and everything else. Yeah, so it just compounds to your you know your your public <coughs> reputation. Of, Gosh, yeah. you know what the heck is this? It's interesting to this day that that you know people conflate the Ponzi with the criminal charge still. Uh, and they literally, oh yeah, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I ask people all the time. Gee, I, you know, I heard you went to prison. You know, well, what? You know, what, these are people that supposedly know me, and they say, well, what, what did you do? Nobody can actually articulate my crime. Well, I haven't heard anyone get it right yet. Well, <laughs> re- recent articles about about you relating to some cleanup stuff um, are, are 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 still kind of conflating all that stuff. It's still Absolutely. there. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of all over the place. There's no real rhyme or reason to any of it. Um, but at this point, the you know the um, there there was a, at the eleventh hour when the, when the the criminal prosecution's uh, sort of uh, uh, indictment came out, mm-hmm. the SEC filed a civil case associated with the Ponzi, yes. uh, which I've subsequently settled. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was put on a shelf until this long, many many year drag out criminal case with, uh, you know had to be defended. So, um, how long is the uh, is the criminal case, and when does it become clear that um, you're going to get a sentence that um, might involve some prison time? Well, that doesn't happen until 2000, gosh, 17, 18, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you know, as you very well know, very few people go to trial with the federal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, you're either rich and stupid, or you're you're innocent, 100 percent innocent. <laughs> really long odds to, to win at, at a trial. And so from my perspective, uh, there was never a question we were going to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my co-defendant, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our situation, there was never a crime, mm-hmm. let alone my involvement. In it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were going to fight. And as you know, that takes a long time. A long time. Mm-hmm. Out of you, it takes a lot out of your family, but it's your life. And so to this day, I'm glad that we did that. Uh, because we actually did win some parts of the case. Yes. Uh, very important parts of the case. Mm-hmm. I never knew how important until I went to prison uh, and, and learned how important. Uh, I would not be where I am today, literally, if I had lost those other charges. Well, wh- why don't you explain that? Because 
I think that there's so many people who do not know that they can fight for their rights. They don't know that that there are negotiable issues that 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 it's not just this big massive thing coming at them that overwhelms them that actually good thinking, good business thinking, good lawyering can actually make a difference. Sure. So like any most federal cases, again, as you've seen, there, there's a lot of stacking going on. So there's a lot of charges yeah. here mm-hmm. that had to be explained to me because again, uh, I, there's a, it's a very confusing situation. Sure. I was personally charged with two counts of wire fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, those wire fraud charges were for referring to extremely wealthy people to Nova Bank when Nova Bank was raising capital during the Great Recession to grow the bank. Uh, first off, there were two kinds of TARP at that time. There was the TARP for the bad banks, and there was a TARP for the good banks to help them buy the bad banks. Nova Bank had applied for the good TARP because they were a healthy bank, and they were actually purchased a bank in 2008 uh, without any government assistance. So as you very well know, the government's not letting you buy a bank if you yourself are not healthy. Yeah. So from Nova Bank's perspective, uh, they were growing. They were raising $30, $40 million to acquire another bank they had ident- identified. Mm-hmm. They uh, were acquiring a financial services firm that they had under agreement. Mm-hmm. So like all these banks, they reached out to everybody. Hey, who can help us raise some more money because sure. we want to take advantage of the Great Recession and grow? Mm-hmm. Uh, they certainly reached out to me. Uh, yeah. I identified two individuals that I thought immediately could, could help. Mm-hmm. Uh, one individual was building a home right next to their headquarters in Pennsylvania and seemed like a logical person, referred him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wired and participated in the investment. So did the other gentleman who happened to already be an investor and already a borrower and already a depositor of bank. So mm-hmm. they already knew of him. Well, this, so these, are, these are super qualified individuals. And, and they, 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 and they, they know you. The, one but testified he was worth $300 million, The other guy testified he was worth $125 million. And and they know I, I I'm sorry for stepping yeah, no, in there, but so they know that you don't buy till there's blood running in the streets, the J.P. Morgan line, right? So so sure. that's what's happening in the recession, and they have uh, both Nova Bank and these people have they they, they want to buy things on the cheap. They want to buy sure. things. Right? Sure, uh, the bank the bank was looking to grow. This was not a bank that had a business plan that was gosh we're going under. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a bank that. You know, saw it as an opportunity to acquire other banks. That's why they embarked on buying the bank in 2008. Uh, and it seemed like a great opportunity for this bank that was had already grown quite some, considerably since 2003. Uh, and so this bank did not have a whole bunch of residential mortgages that were going bad. It was a typical community bank, you know, owner-occupied, commercial stuff, things like that. So the wire fraud was effectively me defrauding these two gentlemen. Well, they got up on the stand at trial and said, yeah, we made the investments. Yeah, we signed the paperwork. Yeah, Barry didn't get paid anything or try to get paid anything. Um, so there's no economic in it for me. I didn't get a referral fee. Didn't even try. It was mm-hmm. just sort of, hey, let's let's help the bank out and make these referrals. Mm-hmm. So during the trial, the judge threw out one of the charges for lack of evidence. And, and uh, I was found not guilty of the other wire fraud charge mm-hmm. as part of the scheme to get TARP for Nova Bank that it didn't get. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second part of the scheme involved these two gentlemen had lines of credit. Uh, and mm-hmm. so they charged Brian and I with bank fraud, uh, implying that the, the loans to these two guys were fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Well, again, both guys get up there. They said, yep, we applied for loans. We made the payments. We knew we took out a credit line. 
the loan committee got up there, said, yep, we gave these guys a loan. We would give these guys a loan every day of the week, twice on Sunday. And so, you know, there was painfully obvious that these guys qualified for lines of credit that they used and, and, and received, um, you know, and, and had nothing to do with me. Most every, everybody said they never even spoke to me, nor did this CEO have any testimony that said that, gosh, you know, he told us we had to give these guys lines of credit. So, again, we were found not guilty of bank fraud. Uh, but, but that was the thinking that the money was circular. They were investing money and taking loans back. And yeah, the theory would be correct. I think if, for example, I grabbed my secretary who you know may not have made a high net worth or had an income and said, "Hey, don't worry about it. You go, you go borrow some money from this bank. We'll get you qualified. We want you to borrow the money, and then we want you to take that money and invest it back into back into the stock of the bank." Right. Um, yeah, no, that, that didn't happen. These were independent high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals who borrowed money from a credit line that they qualified for. Mm-hmm. I didn't get paid for. And they used some or all of that capital to invest in stock in a private bank. Right. CFO recorded that stock as an increase to the bank's capital. You're right. Um, nobody said it wasn't. I don't do accounting for the bank because at that time I'm not on the board. Mm-hmm. I'm not a shareholder. I'm not an officer. I'm a nothing to the bank in that mm-hmm. respect. I have former clients that are uh, that are investors in the bank, uh, but I'm not receiving any compensation from the bank at all. So, uh, what are you eventually convicted of? I didn't know this was possible, mm-hmm. uh, but we were found guilty of the conspiracy uh, of this scheme to defraud the government of TARP. That the bank never got. Again, the bank never received any TARP funds because they turned. They had actually did shut this program down. Mm-hmm. So the conspiracy involves Brian and I, mm-hmm. uh, the CEO of the bank, mm-hmm. uh, where we have an agreement. Of course, there's no email or testimony that I'm calling up this guy during the Great Recession and saying, "Hey, man, I want to make sure you conceal these legal transactions from the government that's not asking you about them." Uh, but that's there's apparently agreement between he and I that he would conceal uh, transactions that are 100% legal from the regulators uh, on the bank's application to give TARP that it ultimately doesn't get. Have you seen the movie The Banker on on uh, Netflix or Amazon? Have you seen this movie? Oh, you have to see this movie because it's so close to this story. It's scary. Oh, it's. Um, I, I still have nightmares about sort of this whole theory that they had. Look, they had a theory. It just didn't happen to be right. Yeah. In order to have a scheme, you would think that my involvement in the referral was illegal or that the bank loan was illegal. I mean, these are important components of the scheme. Yeah. Both were found not guilty of, right? Mm-hmm. So how good can the scheme be when the bank fraud and the wire fraud, you're not guilty of? And clearly are not illegal activities. And you have the CFO. The other thing I could think that would be possible is if the CFO of the bank, who I'd never met at that time, I'd never met him before I saw him at trial, um, decided that he would become an unindicted co-conspirator, for example, and say, yeah, you know, these guys told me to do bad accounting and record these transactions as an increased capital. And I told them that it wasn't from an accounting perspective. But that didn't happen. He testified. He did the accounting. To this day, he believes he did it properly. Never met me. And the CEO never told him how to do it. Mm. The chairman of the bank at the time uh, borrowed money from his own credit line in years previous to buy stock. It's not illegal. It's mm-hmm. not against an accounting rule. 
And the judge ruled that there was no evidence at trial that it was. But somehow we're still guilty of a conspiracy. So um, what, um, what's the fraud loss about? What's the sentencing level that you're, how, how, excuse me? Zero. There was no loss. And so how did they sentence you? And the judge ruled there was no intent to lose, interestingly enough, which became very important uh, down the road. Yeah. Um, so I had, at the time they gave me, I want to say 12 points uh, because they misidentified me as the chairman of the bank at the time, which mm -hmm. I did not. Mm -hmm. uh, we corrected that. Uh, they mm -hmm. also had another uh, error in the PSR. Yeah. Uh, which brought it down to, I want to say it was eight points, which is zero to six months. Um, and that's where you are, zero to six months. As you know, in the federal system, if you go to trial and get zero to six months, you can't figure out what that crime was because that's really hard to do. It, uh, because, I, know, I, I've, never, I've never heard of it before, actually. Um, for, for anyone who's gone to trial. Right, exactly, especially. Mm -hmm. And so we were fairly confident at that point that, you know, there would be no jail time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no victim. There's no greed factor in this case because I never made any money, nor did I attempt to make any money. So you got to figure, you know, wow, why, why would you send this guy to prison, right? I mean, there, there's no, oh, yeah, you might, they might have called it a conspiracy, but nobody really, there's no greed attempt here, right? So uh, at the sentencing, we were pleased when he took away the points to bring me down to the level that was zero to six, but then all of a sudden he added two points for understating the seriousness of the crime which brought me right back to six to 12 months, proceeded to give me 11 months, which means I now have to serve the full 11 months. Yes. Uh, and he fined me $100,000. Um, the CEO was sentenced prior to me. He got 14 months, which means he probably is going to serve 11. Yeah. Uh, and he was fined $50,000. Mm -hmm. uh, as the guy who was part of the scheme, uh, clearly closer to it uh, than I was because he was the actual CEO of the bank that did the concealing. He did nothing wrong. Uh, to this day, he's a kind and honest man. He didn't do anything wrong. But the point is that I'm clearly the bit player in this. Mm -hmm. uh, but needless to say, I got a $100,000 fine. I recall some variation of why did I get $50,000 more that had to do with I could afford it, which <laughs> I thought was interesting. I think I think that's how they assess fines, actually. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so I, I ended up uh, with a higher fine, even though I didn't make any money from this thing. Mm -hmm. My wife says I'm the worst criminal on the planet because I did all of this. I never, there's no monetary benefit to any of this. I didn't try to get paid in the Ponzi. I didn't try to get paid in the bank situation. So, um, so yeah. So I ended up with 11 months, mm -hmm. uh, and so we're immediately we fire for file for bail pending. Yes. Which, again, as you know, is an uphill battle. It's very rarely granted. Uh, we won. Uh, the judge granted, the Third Circuit granted bail pending, uh, which implies that your appeal has merit, yep. um, despite uh, uh, them having to look at the, the government's information or the case, um, you know, in favor of the government. So that's a big step. So did... You have to go to prison before your appeal was decided. No, because we won that. Yeah, but so I had a turning date. But at that point, I was free on bail. Right, and so I'd never been arrested or cuffed or anything in my life. So where where was your appeal pending, and when did you find out that you lost the appeal? The Third Circuit. Mm -hmm. uh, the sentencing was in the first quarter of 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, the the appeal loss came in the summer of 2018. 
So the drip, drip, drip of time, again, is extraordinarily painful uh, because you're just waiting for these decisions, for things to get filed, to redraft after draft with your appeal. Uh, and, and meanwhile, you can't work. There's no, nobody's going to work with you. So, so your, your life has basically been hell for a decade. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you've lost the appeal. And um, how much time do they give you to report? Um, you're, are, and when are you designated and how much time do they give you to report? Well, Jeff, that was a, that was a week unto itself. Mm -hmm. So I want to say it was on a Tuesday. I was working on a project in my office with a meeting, extremely important meeting at 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. I get a call at 9.45 from my attorney that, um, that I had lost the appeal and that the Third Circuit had denied my appeal without any analysis. They provided no analysis. There was no way they could have divided that uh, could have denied my appeal with analysis because it was overwhelming. There wasn't even a process. So was it a one sentence order? Was it? A it was interestingly enough, the sentence that sticks in my mind mm -hmm. was some variation of the, um, the the jury could not possibly have been wrong because uh, it was painfully obvious that we knew that the capital could not be treated as bank capital and therefore you know this whole crime was a crime and it's actually the opposite uh, there's only evidence in trial that the bank capital could actually be treated as capital and there's zero evidence that i'm involved in any of it i, I have no idea why would i be i'm not involved with the bank's accounting um so um and you know the, the, the board of directors you know as a side note approved all of this approved all of it and was aware of all of it and testified to it. So the week that the appeal comes down, um, first of all, I'm in this meeting. I have to actually go through with the 10 o'clock meeting. My hands are shaking. I'm yeah, scared. of course. Going, mm -hmm. I, I have no idea. I call yeah. my wife. You know, I immediately go home. Um, you know, we just, we don't even know what it all means at this point. We've been just fighting for so many years. Yeah. Um, as Stance would have it, my wife and I don't separate a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, because we both have anxiety when we're not together. And so she had to take a trip to North Carolina that Friday uh, mm -hmm. to be with one of our children. Uh, and so I was going to be alone on that Friday afternoon for a weekend mm -hmm. and talk about the worst weekend to be alone. Um, also that Friday, I was getting a regular checkup. I'm a tall guy and I should get my heart checked regularly. So I had a, a heart scan done. Well, 5.30 or so, it's pouring rain. I'm into a bottle of wine and, and I'm sitting in my house lamenting my lot in life. And, and I'm, this call that I don't know is ringing off the hook. I finally pick it up and it's my doctor. And he says, um, well, you know, I got the good news and the bad news. The good news is your heart's perfectly fine. The bad news is we picked up a uh, fairly large nine centimeter tumor on your kidney. Uh, it's more likely than not to have to be operated on. <laughs> it's not, really? What more can happen? Um, so I don't tell my wife, uh, yeah. I wait till Monday morning yeah. uh, gets back, uh, because I have to go to the urologist, mm -hmm. uh, find out that yes, I have to have surgery. I have to have this thing removed. Um, we then contact the courts to say, look, this is what's happening. He has to have this growth removed. Surgery is in October. There's a recovery time. As you know, all the paper yeah. you have to submit mm -hmm. in order to get a turn in date. Uh, my surgery was October 15th. Uh, the judge called a hearing in December, or I want to say December 10th or something, to decide on the turning date. So not only do you mentally 
you're having this surgery, uh, went successfully. Uh, I thank all the University of Miami robotics team for, uh, for, for doing an amazing job. And uh, it turned out to not be cancerous, which is mm. great news. Yeah. Uh, I recover from that, lose a lot of weight uh, under a lot of stress. Yeah. Uh, and then waiting for this hearing to determine when I'm to be turned, uh, when I'm supposed to turn myself in. Of well, course, is it, know, it's a week later, five weeks later. Well, is the government pushing for you to uh, have a surrender date at that point? They or? don't really seem to be all that interested yeah. in that, to be honest with you. The prosecutor that pushed my entire case over the transom, mm -hmm. uh, within a short period of time, uh, right after he filed my indictment, he quit his job and took a job at the SEC. Mm -hmm. And within an equally brief period of time, took a job in private practice. I'm not surprised. So private practice right now, showing my case as to why you should hire him as a great defense lawyer, uh, which is quite comical to me. Um, well, well it, it, as an interesting sidebar, there's not that many defense lawyers out there who actually have prosecutorial trial experience because there's not that many trials. Correct. So so it's it's so I can understand why he's using a trial as his calling card because because to find a trial lawyer who's actually been through trials is rare these days. That's absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. And so you know, um, so yeah, so we find out in December that my turn-in date, uh, the judge has a sense of humor, was February fourth of two thousand nineteen, which is my birthday. <laughs> oh my god. So did he know that or was it just coincidence? It's just coincidence. He just wow. ran. Uh, so my wife and I fly from here to Pittsburgh on on February 5th, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, February 3rd. Mm -hmm. um, we watch the Super Bowl at the hotel in Pittsburgh and my wife drives me to Mo Shannon prison on uh, February 4th, my birthday. Best, birth best birthday of my life. No. <laughs> um, and so how much time do you wind up serving there? I serve 11 months. Mm -hmm. Uh, Moshan is a low to medium because it's an immigration prison. Because I'm yes. Canadian, I have to go to an immigration prison. Right. Um, as we're approaching the end of my stay, um, I was never deportable, mm -hmm. ever deportable, because the case has two primary ingredients. One, my sentence was less than 12 months. And two, there was no restitution or loss of greater than $10,000. Mm -hmm. So, so I was never deportable. I have a green card for twenty plus years. So, so, so that that's at least part of the of the unplanned outcome. the The success of of some of these uh, these issues in the middle of the trial that you oh, yeah. you probably think that you're you're preparing to be deported potentially, but as it turns out, you're not deportable. Yeah, if I was found guilty of the bank and wire fraud charges, as you know, my sentence would be two, three, four, five years at least. Right. Um, what would limit it is the fact there was never a victim and there was never any money involved. And, uh, and were, so, people, were people um, prepping you for how you would be uh, uh, de potentially detained post sentencing and then brought to ICE and then brought and then deported out of the country? One of the biggest challenges was finding a good immigration lawyer. I'll mm -hmm. be honest with you. Yeah. We interviewed four. We got four different answers. Mm -hmm. uh, and none of them were very good. Yeah. Uh, we lucked on to the best lawyer of our entire process at the tail end, thank God. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reality is that um, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would not walk out of that place into my wife's arms uh, and we would go home together on January 2nd, 2020. 
Mm-hmm. You, um, you can you can shout out your, the, the the lawyer, by the way, if you if you think he did a great job, you can shout yeah, out. No, Ted Ted Murphy mm-hmm. was, was the best. Yeah, uh, and so and where's he located? Uh, he's in D.C. and Westchester, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the there was a separate lawyer that he co-partnered with, which is a separate story. Uh, but his name is Craig Shagan. Uh, between the two of them, uh, they partnered together and had never worked together before. One's a Georgetown guy, and one's a Villanova guy, uh, which is sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they worked together, uh, you know, saving my life uh, yeah. in terms of my ability to stay in the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, my wife and I have six kids combined, and 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 you know, two dogs, a cat, and you know, my life is in is in the states. So uh, that was very important, obviously, but. I did not anticipate being hauled away in chains like a serial killer, uh, you know, the day of my release to be yeah. put into ICE custody mm-hmm. for what turned out to be an additional four weeks uh, in various locations, traveling all over the country, mm-hmm. uh, multiple bunks and cells uh, with no end in sight. Uh, if the government decided to appeal, it would be a six month process. The lawyers assured me that we would win, but I had heard that before. Uh, but the reality was I was unnecessarily held by ice for four weeks in really bad places. Um, were, were you given an, no an, reason whatsoever. Were you given an A series number at that point? The, uh, uh, you, um, you're now an immigration detainee, right? So, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, um, the, um, yeah, so the, uh, we, we, the first hearing was going to be February 5th this time, the day after my birthday, mm-hmm. a year after I got invited, I went, to, went to prison the first place. And you know, my wife got a call on a Friday right before that, uh, that the judge in the case had thrown the case out before the hearing, gating mm-hmm. uh, um, report to the government that they uh, never should have been held in the first place. Because one of the one of the things they try to do is say there was a, an intent to lose greater than ten thousand, even though there was no victim. But in this case, it's patently crazy, right? So a community bank's applying for TARP to then attempt to squander it. I mean, it makes no sense, right? And it certainly has nothing to do with me. Yeah. So, so that 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 was interesting. But the the fact that the trial judge said that there was no intent to lose any money in this case, he mm-hmm. actually used those words in sentencing. Yeah back to help us in the immigration situation because um, there was, in fact, no intent. They never could have, should have held me in the first place. I should have been able to go home. And so I finally was released into the arms of my attorney's wife because my wife had no idea that, that I would be getting out. Yeah. On the following Monday, um, and I met my sons in Philadelphia at the Marriott Hotel. One of my best friends picked me up at the lawyer's office. My wife flew in at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we both drove to Washington, D.C., spent a couple nights in a hotel. I got a haircut and, uh, and went to home to Florida shortly thereafter. So. It's amazing. And um, so here's a little practice point. Re- read the transcript carefully of the, uh, of the court proceeding because uh, uh, there could be gold nuggets in there. There could be gold nuggets that, that in the immigration situation came back to help me yeah. out uh, beyond. Uh, yeah, it was huge. Uh, to do that. So you, so you, you could, mentioned, you mentioned before sort of the, um, you know, the prosecutor and sort of that whole situation. You know, everyone always asks you, um, are you there? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did I lose you? No, I'm, t- I'm still here. Are you there? Okay. Yeah. My screen went down. Um, 
So, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So the always everyone asks me, sort of, you know, why do you think they pursued this? Mm -hmm. I believe that because my Ponzi scheme that that, that I got pulled into mm -hmm. uh, happened so closely after the Madoff situation. Yes. That the Philadelphia Philadelphia, I don't think, is a hotbed of white collar crime. It's not mm -hmm. Wall Street. It's not DC and it's not one of these other cities that tend to have a lot of this stuff, I don't think. Uh, and so if you're a prosecutor and you want to get ahead and you find out that there's this money manager who's a former Villanova basketball player and he's become very successful and grew rapidly with billions under management, there's no way that can be for real. And so he has to be running a Ponzi. And I think that this guy believed that he was going to find out that my firm was a Ponzi. He was going to be the one to uncover it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's where I think that the Ponzi in South Florida led a Philadelphia prosecutor to sort of research that, because that's kind of where a lot of the early stuff hovered around my firm. Mm -hmm. But once you start expending agent resources, yes, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and you finally bring an indictment that has nothing to do with my old company or anything in 2015 or sorry, mm -hmm. 14. That yeah. Nothing to do with any monetary loss whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Boy, you're stretching. Mm -hmm. And so the um, you know the theory is that you know in a justification of resources, uh, and as you pointed out, a springboard attempt uh, that that's why this whole thing ended up coming into a, into fruition. Well, you're you're always um, looked at um, in relationship to what world events are going on at that particular time. So, um, for example, in my case, um, although I, 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 I did commit fraud, so, um, but because it was uh, um, misuse of SBA loan funds post 9-11, um, there was no way that I wasn't going to be looked at in light of the fact that it was, uh, I was sentenced uh, not that long after 9-11 and, and I wasn't, although the judge was, uh, gave me a downward departure, I wasn't not going to serve, uh, prison time. Right. But under a different, completely different circumstance, um, may, maybe not. So, yeah. uh, so we, we were devastated at the sentencing because it's zero to six points and nonviolent, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but no victim and no money lost, but no greed factor. This entire mm. case did not involve any money I was going to get. Yeah. Not or received in any way, shape, or form. So, mm -hmm. you know, which also begs the question, what was my motive to do this thing? So I'm running a, effectively a big private equity RIA for, you know, 20 some years yeah. doing transactions with hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And I randomly wake up one day and decide to commit this victimless conspiracy. Yeah. I, it literally makes no sense. So you, you, you come out, you're released from uh, immigration detention and um, COVID is weeks, weeks later. Right, right around the corner. Weeks later. So how's your life been over the last year? And have you been able to recover? Have you been able to find uh, any uh, firm ground under you? I mean, this is a... It's, it, this is, it's been a crazy decade. Now you're come out into a crazy situation. You know, it, it's, my wife has been through the 10 years with me. 
Yeah. And, and you, I don't have to explain the toll. Um, you know, a lot of your viewers know that. And so the fact that she's hung in through this for all 10 years is truly a testament to the woman that she is. Mm. And so, you know, for both of us, it was, this is the first time in, gosh, 10 years, we've been able to make a plan, mm. certainly a financial plan. Mm. Uh, we haven't been able to budget properly because it's almost impossible to budget for thousands of legal fees coming up at each and every stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, but budgeting really for anything is a really difficult thing to do. So I got to tell you, the biggest thing I, I've, I've realized the last year is twofold. One, how I was not myself and not in of right mind uh, the two or three years prior to mm. because of fear yeah. and just uncertainty and an inability to find out who I am every day waking up and the stress. Trauma everywhere. Trauma. You just don't know. And mm -hmm. couple that with the kidney surgery at the time, it was mm -hmm. just, it was, it was truly an overwhelming thing for me. Yeah. Uh, but now it's the opposite. I feel very liberated after mm -hmm. 10 years of not being able to, to, to look at a business, start a business, have partners say, gosh, he's going to be there to actually execute um, is, is really exciting. You, and, and, you, so. and, you, and you can't talk about this. Look, this is your first interview, really, yeah. right? Yeah, no, I've been, mm -hmm. not so much that I haven't. I've been writing a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I started uh, Stolen Freedom, which is maybe it's a book, maybe it's just therapeutic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it'll ultimately be on my website, Stolen Freedom. Mm -hmm. um, but it, you have to get it out. You have yeah, to. Yeah. You know, for me, writing about it has helped been helpful mm -hmm. um, in terms of articulating what happened and and how I felt, and and certainly for my kids, I think it, it'll be good to know. Uh, over time, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Look, Becca Dam is not Smith. Um, you know, <laughs> when you it, it comes up, and my yeah. kids have that last name. So, you know, that's not an easy thing. And yeah. so, you know, uh, they they certainly should be armed with with you know uh, an effort on my part mm -hmm. to restore that. But what people very few people really understand, which is a part of my intro to the book, is you know. During the entire process, you really can't talk about it, right? Because yeah. you really can't fight the nonsense that's on the internet, right? Of course. I mean, this one woman wrote this article, I'll never forget it, said, you know, and he was recruited by, by, by um, prestigious Catholic schools. Okay, so McDonald's All-American are only recruited by Catholic schools? Yeah. Uh, you know, things like that that just are just silly, but you can't compete or... or you can't go back and correct these people. You'll drive yourself crazy because yeah. uh, they really don't care and they don't want to be right anyway. Um, but it's hurtful. Uh, and, you know, especially during the legal proceedings, as you know, you can't say anything. No. The good news is that I did go to trial mm -hmm. and they can't stop me from talking about this case. Ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, so so, so, so what, what's your legal situation right now? Are you clear of everything? Are you? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm on supervised release. Uh, I have another, I don't know, year and change of that to go. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no, there's no monetary issues. So there's mm -hmm. no, there's no money that I owe or anything like that. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, um, you know, just putting in that long time. I, you know, I think it's, it's amazing. It's effectively the same position you were in for the years you were fighting. And now you're just doing that all over again. Yeah. Um, you know, the people within the, the department that oversee that, um, I have, you know, there's an especially kind lady mm -hmm. now who's, 
she was human. You know, she's yeah. fine. She understands. I think that's an important part of the process. And, and, and she let you do this interview. So yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I asked her whether I could participate. So, so Barry, we, um, in, in wrapping up, um, because taking us through the nuts and bolts, I think is very instructive for people who are facing it and, or even for uh, civilians out there who are just kind of like, uh, you know, have, have interest in it. What, what's the one or two big takeaways you have from all of this? Because no doubt you've been, you spent many, many nights thinking about, um, how this all relates. Um, and I'm sure some nights you felt like Job and some nights you felt like, so, I mean, what, what's the big takeaway? I mean, um, and, um, do you think that this can happen to anybody? And so that, that it's just dumb luck, luck of the draw. If you're an ambitious guy and, or, or what's, what's the big takeaway? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you clearly, when you're embarking in any business whatsoever, you need to be careful mm-hmm. uh, and really have uh, professionals around you that you seek advice from that uh, on technical issues that you're not necessarily, I have no idea all the intricacies of bank capital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no clue. Um, but, but, you know, you, you know, but you just, you're right. I mean, when, when you, when, when a prosecutor chooses to target you um, for whatever reason, um, it's almost impossible to stop them from from tracking down whatever it is they want to track down. And if they want to make something up, they'll do it. And so, but what the most important lessons are your family's in it with you. And, mm. and never forget that. Mm. And so, especially my wife uh, and her support couldn't do it without her, couldn't rebuild without her. Um, you know, the the question your lawyers, you know, in, especially in white collar. Um, you know, your lawyers in many cases are ex-prosecutors. They're, they're lawyers. They're not business people. And don't underestimate the skill sets that made you very successful at business are skill sets that help you interpret things and or present things during your trial and other parts of this process. Yeah. And oftentimes, those are skill sets that your lawyers don't have. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're not business people. No. They, right? Yeah. You forget that you're pretty good at what you did back in the day before you what you started going through all of this, and you you lose confidence, and sometimes you just blindly follow your attorneys. I think one of my best attorneys during the entire process ended up being local counsel Michael Engel mm-hmm. uh, in Philadelphia, who has never been a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And I found it very valuable that he was never a prosecutor. He came at it from a different angle than all the other lawyers who were former prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Abby Lowell and his team, Chris Mann, who did my appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll never forget walking in their offices in Washington, and they took me by the hand when they took the case. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, we're really sorry. You know, you did not commit a crime, and, and we're going to do our best. And they did a great job. But you do question your lawyers all along the way uh, and never lose faith. Never lose faith in the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gets dark. Uh, I, I was scared to death I was going to be deported and not be able to come back to the United mm-hmm. States. And so, you know, never lose faith uh, in that process uh, and in your family's ability to survive it with you. Uh, mm-hmm. It's important. Um, Barry, um, thank you so much. Um, you know, as someone who has championed his own cause and actually gone to trial and weathered the storm and been 
vindicated in part and then had to serve in part. Um, it's a fascinating story, and uh, I'm really proud to call you a friend and a uh, and a colleague in all of this and a fellow. So um, thank you, and uh, God bless you, and um, and uh, I hope you'll join our support group one of these Monday nights because I, uh, I promise I will. I uh, promise. I wonderful. Promise. All right, thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.